Good morning again. Uh, turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to Acts chapter 2. That'll be our sermon text for this morning, Acts 2, verses 1 through 21. And uh, before we read that, uh, let's pray again together. Please pray with me. Father, we do pray that everything that we do and think and say would be consecrated to you, that it would be uh, for your honor and your glory. Uh, we pray that this moment right now would be for your honor and your glory, that you would, once again, uh, we pray that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would illumine our minds uh, to understand your word, that you would soften our hearts, that we would be willing to receive it and that you would help us to see Jesus in all of his glory, and that you would uh, help us to know your love through the cross, help us to rest in that love and rejoice in that love and be changed by that love. Father, work now through your word to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> Acts chapter 2, uh, beginning with verse 1. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were, dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia. Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? Others mocked, saying, They are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy." And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood, for the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Well, a few weeks ago, uh, we began the sermon talking about events that had changed history. And we mentioned sort of some, some large 
era-setting events. We mentioned things like the moon landing and 9-11, things which have shaped at least American life ever since. We could have mentioned other things, right? We could have gone back even further. We could have uh, mentioned the founding of our country. Uh, We could have mentioned the Civil War. We could have mentioned the Civil Rights Movement. All of these uh, are events that changed history as we know it. And we feel the effects of those events to this day. Of course, there are also uh, personal life-shaping events, right? Things that happen to us as individuals uh, that change us for good or for bad. Uh, So you, you leave home for college for the first time, or you get married, or you have your first child. But then there's also, on the other side, divorce and personal tragedy the death, death of a loved one. Those kinds of events may feel the same to you, to the one who's experiencing them, uh, but of course, big epoch-making events are not quite the same as personal life-shaping events. There, there's a difference, right? If only in scope, uh, the, the, the one is long-term and has a widespread impact on life. Another difference, right, is that epoch-making events are normally one-time things. Uh, They don't happen again and again. But uh, often life-shaping events are stories that play out over and over again in various people's lives. They're repeated in in your life and in mine again and again. We come this morning to uh, the story of Pentecost. Uh, Pentecost uh, was the day in history when Jesus poured out his Spirit on the church. Pentecost is one of those epoch-making events. Sometimes people think about Pentecost as a a pattern of of kind of a life-shaping event. Uh, They see Pentecost as a paradigm for the Christian life. uh, And and there is a sense in which that is true, uh, but only in the same sense that the cross of Christ is also a pattern for our lives. You know, Jesus died on the cross for sin. Uh, We obviously cannot die on the cross for sin. And yet Jesus calls us to take up our cross and follow him. See, there's a uniqueness. There's a once-for-allness to the cross. And only when we grasp that can we begin to understand the cross as a pattern. Only when we see that what Christ did is utterly unique can we begin to understand how we follow in his footsteps. The same is true with Pentecost. Uh, There is a unique once-for-allness, an unrepeatableness to Pentecost. Like the breaking down of an unwanted dam, right? You break the dam and the water flows. Uh, You don't have to keep breaking the dam down every generation. Every time someone drinks of the river downstream, it's, it's not a fresh breaking of the dam. Well, the dam broke once for all at Pentecost, And our job this morning is to look at the the breaking of the dam on that day and the mighty river as it flows downstream. Uh, That is, we're going to look at Pentecost, we're going to look at the event of Pentecost, and we're going to look at some of the implications of it for us today. Uh, If you want to follow along, there's an outline on the back of your bulletin. Uh, There are uh, seven points this morning. At 10 minutes a point, that's an hour and 10 minutes. You know I'm joking, that's good. Uh, Some of them will go through pretty quickly. 
Some of them will take a little longer. And all of them we will see more of as we go through Pentecost. I know I keep, uh, go through the book of Acts. I know we keep saying that as uh, we've gone through the first chapter. We're now into the second chapter. These chapters are laying the foundation for the rest of the book. So the things that we're talking about, uh, we're just kind of laying the foundation. And we'll see them in more detail as we go. So we're going to talk about a new age, a new creation, a new temple, a new humanity, a new mission, a new power, and a new moment, and the implications of those for us, right? The, the call for us to, to hope and to holiness and to reconciliation and to witness and to rest and to readiness. The, the short point is that the coming of the Spirit at Pentecost uh, was a radical and unrepeatable fulfillment of God's promise that dramatically changes history. And so it has radical and boundless implications for our lives. The coming of the Spirit brought a new age. And with that, everything changes. And we are now called to live in light of this new age. So first, we'll talk about that new age and the call to live in these last days. Do you remember where we are in the book of Acts, right? Jesus was rejected by his own in the Gospels. He was crucified. He died and was buried. But he rose from the dead on the third day. And he spent 40 days then teaching his disciples about the kingdom of God. He commanded in Acts 1.8, Wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father, for the power uh, that will come from the Holy Spirit. And then finally Jesus ascended into heaven, to the throne of heaven at the Father's right hand. And then the disciples went back to Jerusalem, and they waited. Well, the disciples have waited, and the day of Pentecost has finally come. And some commentators point out that uh, the word arrived in verse 1, it says, when the day of Pentecost arrived, that word is, a, is actually a, a bit of a stronger word. It means fulfilled. Uh, it, it's the idea of fulfillment, even prophetic fulfillment. That's the way Paul uses the word in Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, when he says, When the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son. Right? There's this sense of fulfillment. That's the way Luke uses the word in Luke 9, 51, when he says, When the days drew near, that is, when the days were fulfilled for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. You see, fulfill implies that this long wait is over, finally. Right? The fruit is ripe and ready to be picked. The field is ready for the harvest. Uh, the pregnant mother is ready to give birth. This long-awaited event has finally come. The point is not right, that, that Monday arrived again, or even that Christmas Day has arrived again. Those are things that repeat and happen again and again. Uh, the point is that the, the time that was long awaited, long prophesied, long promised has now arrived. Pentecost has come. And Peter will point out later in the chapter that the coming of the Spirit is the fulfillment of the hope of the prophets. Look down at verse 16. Peter says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. It's interesting, Peter actually slightly changes uh, Joel here to make it even more explicit. Joel chapter 2 verse 28 uh, says, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. But when Peter quotes it in verse 17, he says, And in the last days God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. 
Peter wants us to know that the last days have come, that prophecy is being fulfilled, right? And so for all you, you prophecy geeks out there, right, who are always trying to figure out, well, when is what going to happen, uh, here's what the scriptures tell us. We are living in the last days. And it didn't start when Trump was elected in 2016, and it didn't start when Obama was elected in 2008, I guess depending on your political views, right? Uh, it didn't start when Israel was constituted a nation state in 1948. The last days began when Jesus rose from the dead and poured out his spirit on the church, the spirit of the new age. You know, later Peter in his first letter uh, will say, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he preached the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Peter is saying that what the prophets spoke about has now come to pass. It has come upon you, right, the hearers of his letters in the first century. It has come upon us, right, the church. Joel uh, specifically talks about signs and wonders uh, in uh, Joel chapter 2. And uh, he talks about blood and fire and smoke. He talks about a dark sun and a blood moon. And uh, you might wonder, okay, uh, where were those things on Pentecost? He mentions this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel, and then he reads those kinds of things. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, and so on. And, uh, well, the fire was there. We know that. We'll get to that in a minute, right? There were tongues of fire uh, on each of their heads. Uh, we, we also know, Peter will point out later in the passage, that Jesus was attested by wonders and signs, right? Jesus, Jesus performed wonders and signs. Uh, he certainly bled at the cross, um, where also, if you remember, the sun went dark for three hours, right? So all of these signs relate to things that were fulfilled in the death, the resurrection, the ascension of Jesus, and the pouring out of the Spirit, now, I don't actually know that the point is to find a fulfillment for each of these images in that day. Uh, they were images of cataclysmic activity. That was the point. Something amazing is going to happen. Something incredible and scary is going to happen. Something world-changing. And, uh, of course, something incredible and terrifying and world-changing did happen in the cross and in the resurrection and in the pouring out of the Spirit. The last days have come. A new age has dawned. And of course, the question is, what in the world does that mean? What does that mean? What is this new age? That moves us to the next point about a new creation and the call to hope. Uh, why, why do we become hopeless? I, I think we become hopeless in part uh, because we're being realistic. Uh, maybe that makes me a pessimist, I don't know. But, uh, you know, science tells us that the world is moving toward disorder. The nightly news tells us the same thing. Life is difficult when we honestly evaluate ourselves. 
when we, we have to admit, right, that we don't, we don't even have what it takes to solve our own problems half the time, much less the world's problems. And people quickly become hopeless when, be, when they begin this honest evaluation of life's problems, of human resources. They look around and they just think that this is hopeless. Now, again, you, you may think I'm just being pessimistic. Maybe that's true. I don't know. Uh, but here's what I do know. I know that the coming of the Spirit gives us hope. The very first thing that happens on Pentecost is they hear a sound. Verse 2 says this. Suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And verse 4 says that that sound signifies the coming of the Spirit. And you, know, you probably know this, but uh, you may know this, that the Hebrew and the Greek words both for spirit also mean breath and wind. And so this is no accident, right, that, that, that Jesus tells us uh, at one point that the spirit is like a wind. John 3, 8, he says, the wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. See, like the wind, the Spirit is mysterious, uncontrollable. But we see His effects. And even in Acts 2, we hear His effects in Acts 2. The psalmist uh, compares the Spirit to breath. He says at one point concerning animals, Psalm 104, he says, When you take away their breath, they die and return to the dust. When you send forth your Spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. See, the Spirit is mysterious is, and, and breathes life into us. He gives us life. We see the Spirit at creation. You may remember from Genesis chapter 1, like this great wind blowing over the chaotic seas of the deep. But of course, life happens after Genesis 1, and uh, creation kind of goes downhill after that. And yet Ezekiel promises a day when God would send again his spirit. Ezekiel 36, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Of course, the very next chapter of Ezekiel, you may know, uh, is, the, is uh, Ezekiel 37. It's the vision of the valley of dry bones. You know that chapter? It's one of those chapters in Ezekiel that every young boy loves, right? Because it's about bones and flesh, and it's just cool. Uh, at least it was when I was a kid. Um, this is where God has Ezekiel prophesy to the bones, prophesy to the flesh, and it comes back together. And then God has Ezekiel prophesy to the breath. Ezekiel uh, 37, 9. Prophesy to the breath, breath prophesy, son of man. And say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that they may live. And then God explains it in Ezekiel a few verses later. He says, and I will pour, put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. You see these promises, right, that the Spirit would come, that He would restore what has been broken, that He would bring a new creation. And here now on Pentecost, we have this new creation. As the Spirit comes like a wind and blows on God's people, and like a breath, filling dry bones with life. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you may remember, unless you are born again by the Spirit, 
you cannot see the kingdom of God. The Spirit must come and give us new life. Do you remember what Pentecost is a celebration of? Uh, it was a Jewish festival, actually. It was uh, the, the Feast of First Fruits. And uh, it celebrated the first fruits of the harvest. You may wonder, okay, what does that have to do with the pouring out of the Spirit? Well, uh, Paul says in Romans 8.23 that the Spirit himself is actually the first fruits of the new creation. That we who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan for the full coming of that new creation. The Spirit himself is the first fruits of the new creation. When we receive the Spirit, we become a new creation. The Spirit is the first fruits. By pouring him out on the church, Jesus has brought us into that new creation. Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Do you see why this brings hope? This world is falling apart, right? Scientifically, socially, politically, sometimes personally. Our own little worlds are falling apart. But that doesn't mean that we have to be gloomy pessimists walking around moping about the state of the world. Why not? Because God is at work bringing about a new creation by His Spirit. In and through the church, the Spirit-indwelt body of Jesus. So whatever difficulty you may be experiencing, whatever trials, whatever troubles, God is at work by His Spirit making all things new. His Spirit is big enough, is powerful enough to care for you in the midst of your trouble. Don't despair. Right? Put your hope in Him, in God's work, and watch as He makes all things new. That's what He's doing. That's what He's at work doing. That, that will only be complete at the return of Jesus. We'll get to that more in a minute. But that is what He is doing now. That's what the Spirit is about. Making us new. The coming of the Spirit not only signifies a new creation and this call to hope, but it also signifies a new temple and a call to holiness. Um, you know, just as the new creation answers our despair, the new temple actually answers our longing. It answers our longing. Um, everyone longs for something. And for some, uh, that longing is buried deep under layer after layer of bitterness and disappointment. But if you look deep enough below the bitterness... Uh, the, the root of that is longing. A, a longing maybe that has been too long unfulfilled, but a longing nonetheless. And all longing has this kind of primordial referent. You know, when we long for the perfect hamburger, or the perfect beer, or the perfect sunset, it's because embedded deep in human memory is this sense of pleasure, this sense of delight, this sense uh, that in this life, this delight, this joy, this pleasure, that in this life we have not known. We long for it. We desire it. So we long for something more, something more than we experience in this life. Now, I think no one would actually believe that the answer to that longing is holiness. It just doesn't compute in our minds. Like longing and holiness just don't seem to fit together in any way whatsoever. But that's because we don't understand holiness. And not because uh, you don't want holiness, that may be true, but because you just, we, we don't understand it. We just don't have a category in our head for what holiness is all about. 
which makes sense because it's holiness and it's other. Um, Verse 3, though, together with the sound of a mighty rushing wind came tongues of fire. Fire is this ancient image, right? An ancient imagery representing the presence of God. Moses, you remember, took off his shoes before the flaming bush that did not burn. The angel of God appeared to Moses in the bush. A pillar of fire stood over the tabernacle in the wilderness, representing the presence of God within. By the tongues of fire appearing on the heads of the disciples, God was showing us that by the coming of the Spirit, we now are the temple, the dwelling place of God, because God's Spirit dwells within us. The separate tongues on each one of them may well point to the fact that God dwells in each of us in the church by His Spirit. Not just the church collectively, though that is true and uniquely so, but each of us individually. God dwells within you, and you are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Which means that just as the pillar of fire moved around wherever the tabernacle went, so God goes with us, us, each one of his children, wherever we may go. Uh, Now, it's true that, of course, God's presence as fire can be a little bit terrifying. I mean, Scripture says our God is a consuming fire, a jealous God ready to inflict vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of his son. That's Deuteronomy 4.24 and Hebrews 12.23 and 2 Thessalonians 1.8, right? Terrifying image of the, 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 the heat of God. And so the fire imagery is a little bit scary. But fire not only consumes, according to Scripture, it also purifies. Malachi chapter 3 says of the coming of Jesus, Who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. See, God comes to his people not to judge them, but Uh, the judgment was laid upon his son, and so God comes to his people to purify them, that they might, uh, as Malachi says, bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord, offerings that are pleasing to him. And and here's what we need to see here. Here's the point of all this. God sends his spirit to make us a, a holy temple. But holiness is not simply, in fact, holiness is not even mainly a moral term. Holiness is is an identity. Holiness is is about what world you belong to. It's about who you belong to. Holiness is to be set apart for something or someone. It's like when you have special dishes for special occasions. They're like your holy dishes. Nobody touches them except when whatever. Or to be engaged. You you are now holy to your fiancé. You're set apart for that person. Now, really, only God in Scripture is, is, is holy intrinsically and things that are set apart to Him. But you get the idea. It's about, it's about our purpose. It's about a relationship. And the priests who were designated as holy could enter the house of God to commune with God day by day. We have been set apart by God, not just to enter His house, but to be His house. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. This actually gets us a little bit into our passage for next week, but notice verse 28, uh, a few verses later than than our text, where Peter says, uh, You have made known to me the paths of life. 
you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Now, the Hebrew psalm there actually says uh, a little fuller, in your presence is fullness of joy, at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Peter's quotation shortens that, makes it a little bit clearer. The pleasures are in God himself. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. See, by consecrating us as his holy temple, we are made holy to find intimacy with the Father by the indwelling of the Spirit, that we might know the joy of God's presence. It's about communing with God in his house. That is the satisfaction of all our longing, meeting with our Father. Hence, holiness is the answer to our longing, right? To be set apart for intimate fellowship with the living God. So with the coming of the Spirit, we've entered a new age. We've become a new creation and a new temple, answering our despair and our longing with hope and holiness. Uh, next, we turn to a new humanity and the call to reconciliation. Uh, now, I don't have to tell you about the dividedness of American culture. Uh, Bryce prayed a little bit about that this morning, not knowing, I don't think at least, what I was going to be talking about uh, fully. And uh, the dividedness of our culture is just a small picture of the dividedness of our world, isn't it? Ethnic and racial lines are some of the deepest divisions that we have. As a country, we have been trying and failing for generations to overcome those divisions. But the Spirit brings reconciliation. The Spirit makes a new family, a new humanity, not one that is divided along ethnic or economic or educational lines, but one that is united by the Spirit. And so not only did tongues uh, as of fire rest on the disciples' heads, but as we read through the story, uh, their tongues began to talk. And they spoke in other tongues, that is, in other languages. And Luke tells us in verses 5 and 6, he says, Now there were, there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews devout men from every nation under heaven, every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And then Luke begins to list uh, various people groups that are there that day. Now, these were all Jews mostly, uh, he says, but some were proselytes, converts to Judaism. And the point is that people from the whole known world in that day heard about the mighty works of God in his own language. Everyone was hearing, no matter where they were from, no matter what language they spoke. Uh, and, and you may remember in Scripture, you go back in Scripture, there was a time, uh, according to Scripture, when humanity spoke one language, a common language. Humanity was united, but they were united in their opposition to God. And if you remember the story, God confused their languages to slow that opposition as a judgment on their being united in opposition. And uh, the confusion of the Tower of Babel, as we call the story, right, is a symbol of judgment. But on the day of Pentecost, the many languages brought not confusion and division, but clarity and unity, because all heard in their own language of the mighty works of God. Everyone was hearing. God is, is reversing the effects of the fall. He's reversing the effects of his judgment. He's reversing the effects of, of the Tower of Babel. All heard in his own language of the mighty works of God. 
Uh, now that day, as we're told, it was, it was only Jews and converts to Judaism who heard. But that worldwide hearing, Jews from every nation under heaven, is really just a precursor of what is going to happen in the rest of the book of Acts. As the gospel goes forth from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth, to Rome, which uh, Luke mentions, people from Rome even were there that day, and Paul is going to end up in Rome with the gospel. So this is just a precursor of what the gospel is going to do, where the gospel is going to go. So the good news of Jesus will go forth to the nations, bringing people from every tribe and tongue to Jesus and bringing them together into the church. Hence this call to us to a gospel-based reconciliation. We are called into one body, the church, with people from every ethnicity under heaven. And that is something that we must pursue. Now that's going to vary from place to place and, and so on. But we must pursue reconciliation with those who are different from us within the body of Christ if it is ever going to happen. We must seek to love those who are different from us. We are part of a new creation, and so we have hope. Uh, we are part of a new temple, so we have holiness and satisfaction in our God. We're part of a new humanity, so we are called to reconciliation. Ultimately, first and foremost, through the blood of Jesus, we are reconciled to our Father. But we must pursue unity then as the body of Jesus, together with other believers in him. It brings us to our next point, a new mission and the call to witness. Uh, the reconciliation that we pursue comes about through the gospel. We proclaim a message that Jesus has risen from the dead, that he was exalted as king, and all who look to him find forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Spirit. And that message uh, is a message that each of us is to proclaim. Each of us is to speak about Jesus and what he has done. It's not a job just for professional evangelists, right? It's a job for spirit-filled Christians to talk about Jesus. Uh, back in, in uh, the book of Numbers, uh, Moses, you may remember at one point, I won't go into the details of the story, but Moses longed for all of God's people to be prophets and that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Well, Joel's prophecy that God would pour out his spirit on all flesh, that sons and daughters would prophesy, young and old would see visions and have dreams, even male and female servants would receive the gift. Right? Moses longed for this day. Joel prophesied about this day. And the point is that everybody was to receive the spirit, regardless of gender or age or social status, even hidden in that phrase, all flesh, right? We might add ethnicity, right? All flesh is a way of referring to all kinds of people. All kinds of people. Christ poured out his spirit on all flesh at Pentecost. Not meaning every single person, but all kinds of people who belonged to Christ. And what was the immediate result? They began to speak about the mighty works of God. Now, no one that we know of that day was literally seeing visions or dreaming dreams in that moment. Uh, but that language of prophecy and visions and dreams is to say that when the Spirit would come, he would make all God's people prophets, meaning that all would speak about the mighty works of God. And this is just what we see in the rest of the book of Acts, right? All of God's people are talking about the resurrection of Christ. All are proclaiming Jesus as the risen King. That's our mission, right? To proclaim the kingdom, to tell others about the risen Jesus. 
Now, as far as we know, actually, this is the only time that this group of 120 spoke in other languages like this. In fact, in the story of Moses I mentioned in Numbers 11, we're told that the, the 70 elders who received the Spirit, they prophesied as a result, and were specifically told they did not continue doing it. It was a one-time thing. The spontaneous prophesying as, uh, was a sign of the Spirit's coming, and it was a part of the once-for-all nature, uh, both of that event in Numbers 11 and at Pentecost. That's why we have Bible translators and missionaries who spend hours and hours and years and years learning a language and translating the Bible into that language. As one commentator put it, the instantaneous miraculous gift at Pentecost foreshadowed the labors of preachers and Bible translators and others throughout the centuries through whom the Spirit still spreads Jesus' fame through all the earth. See, see the miraculous nature of Pentecost did not become the regular pattern, either in the book of Acts, as we'll see as we go through the book of Acts, or in the rest of the New Testament. But the mission remains, proclaiming the risen Jesus as king. And, and can I say, right, you put this together with the last point about the nations coming to Jesus, it seems to me that we have a unique opportunity to reach the nations with the gospel right here on this campus. Right? There are 10,000 international students on this campus, 10,000 international students. Um, we don't have to go into all the nations because the nations have come here to Champaign-Urbana. We don't have to move to the ends of the earth because the ends of the earth have come to us. So we have a unique opportunity, right, to reach the nations at our doorstep. And this is for all of us, right? Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, uh, Paul, speaking to the church, says, Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be, see be gracious, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Um, now, I realize, of course, that this looks different for each one of us uh, as we speak to our neighbor, as we seek to love them, share hope with them, the hope of the gospel. Uh, but, but a good place to start for each one of us is, do you know the gospel? <laughs> right? You can't share what you don't know. Uh, do you know the gospel? Do you understand what Jesus has done in the cross and in the resurrection and in his ascension to the right hand of the Father and his pouring out of the Spirit? in the hope of him coming again on the last day. Do you know the gospel? Do you know personally what the gospel means? Is it changing you? Is God at work in your life? Are you learning more and more about his love and his grace day by day? And second, right, are you moving toward people? Are you moving toward others? Um, you know, my temptation often when, when I see people is to hide, right? <laughs> So I don't want to get in conversations, right? I have work to do. I'm busy. God calls us to move toward other people, to love them for Jesus' sake. And if the gospel is deeply impacting your own life and you are moving toward people, you, you will tell them about Jesus um, because you will see, right, that he is the answer for all of your problems and he is the answer for all of theirs as well. It will just come out. You will be excited about the work that he is doing. Now, whatever opportunities you might have, that, of course, is scary for us. Scary for most of us, at least, which brings us to the next point, which is a new power and the call to rest. And I'll keep this short, I promise. We're afraid, often, aren't we, to share the gospel with people. Uh, for one, we're afraid that we're going to get it wrong. We're afraid we're not going to know what to say. 
We're, we're afraid that we won't have the answers to their questions or their, or their critique or their comeback. And how many of you, your, your biggest fear about sharing the gospel is you won't know what to say, right? You just, I don't, I don't know what to say. I might get it wrong. Um, it's interesting, Jesus said to his apostles in Matthew 10, uh, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. And he was talking about times of persecution. He was talking to the 12 apostles. But the principle applies to us still. Right? Yes, we, we don't always know what to say. Yes, we will sometimes get it wrong. But the power for sharing Christ and the power for drawing men to Christ and the power for conversion and new birth is not our words or our eloquence. It's the work of the Spirit. The power is from the Holy Spirit. We, we rest in the presence of God in us. We rest that he will accomplish his purposes. And then we speak in faith. That doesn't mean that, that we don't prepare. It doesn't mean you don't study the word. But we prepare and study in faith, in dependence upon the Spirit, in recognizing our own impotence to change a single heart, no matter how well we word things. But knowing that God promises that his word will not return to him without accomplishing the thing for which he sent it. So we trust him. We trust his word. We must consciously depend upon the power of the Spirit as we share Jesus, lest we fall into fear or arrogance, for that matter. So we live in a new age, as a new creation, a holy temple, a reconciled humanity, on a Spirit-empowered mission to proclaim Jesus as the risen King, which means that we are in a new moment. You know, Acts 17, we'll get there in a long time, but we'll get there in Acts 17. Uh, says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. See, the resurrection of, of Jesus highlights the importance of repentance. Jesus will come again to judge the world, Acts 17 tells us. His resurrection was his inauguration as king and lord and judge. Those who receive the message of Jesus and his royal pardon now will find forgiveness both now and on that day. Right? That's what Peter tells us, uh, quoting Joel. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But there are two responses to the noise of Pentecost. Some marveled, right? but others mocked. The message of the gospel unites people from every tribe and tongue and nation, but it, it also divides. Paul says that through us, the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ is being spread, for we are the aroma of Christ, 2 Corinthians 2, both among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. See, the truth is, not everyone receives the good news of Jesus' resurrection. Not everyone recognizes him as the conquering king who has overcome death on behalf of his people. And you see, right now, Jesus is separating the wheat from the chaff, the sheep from the goats, through the proclamation of the gospel. Those who receive him right, are, are, are sheep and wheat and new creations, holy temples, members of the new humanity, the family of God. But those who reject him are like the chaff. 
And the scripture warns that the fire that came on Pentecost to purify will come one day in judgment. Hence the importance for us to fulfill our role as a prophetic people, right? As a witnessing people, as a vocal people who tell others about the risen Jesus. Now again, I recognize this. This may look different for all of us as we share with those around us, those in school, those at work, those at home, those in our neighborhoods. But I pray that whatever it looks like, that God would put a burden on each one of our hearts to share the work of Jesus with our neighbors, with our coworkers and fellow students, that we would see God at work through us to bring the nations to himself right here in Champaign-Urbana by the power of his spirit. Let's pray. Our Father, we, uh, we do long to see you at work by your Spirit, drawing the nations to yourself. And we not only long to see that, Father, but we would even dare to wish and hope that we might be a part of that. That you, by your Spirit, working in us and through us, would make your glory known. And that people would humble themselves before the risen King. Father, guide us in that. Lead us in that. Propel us toward that. Give us a burden for that. Let our hearts long to see you glorified as people come to bow the knee to the risen Jesus. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.